Welcome back to season three of The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. We've got a killer lineup of filmmakers coming up this run, so stay tuned for the latest releases every other Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we kick off with a conversation with the inimitable Brett Morgan. In 2002, Brett co-directed The Kid Stays in the Picture, a Hollywood fable about the wildlife and raucous times of legendary film producer Bob Evans. After playing at Cannes, the film stormed the documentary world with its cutting-edge visual style of bringing photographs to vivid new life. By this point in his lauded career, Brett had already been nominated for an Oscar for On the Ropes, a boxing film he directed with his then-partner, Nanette Burstein. Since then, Brett has relentlessly pushed the boundaries of what a documentary can be. Among others, he helmed The Chicago Ten, Crossfire Hurricane about the Rolling Stones, a pick about Jane Goodall, and another of my all-time favorites, Montage of Heck about Kurt Cobain. But nothing could quite prepare the world for what happened when he was allowed to wander in the archives of David Bowie and come out years later with Moon Age Daydream. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with Brett Morgan. Brett Morgan, welcome to the show. I am uh, very delighted to have a chance to talk with you. Uh, the last time that uh, I saw you, I think, was at the, it was a screening of Jane at, I can't remember what lot it was, but I remember something, someone, either you telling the story or the presenter telling the story when you were approached about that film of like your reaction being like, dude, I make movie about, movies about rock stars. Like, and they were like, yeah, movie about a rock star. And that's hung with me uh, forever since then. So it's, uh, it's good to have a chance to finally connect with you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so before we go deep Bowie, I want to kind of rewind back a little bit, um, kind of all the way back, if you're willing to do it and give us just a brief, you know, sketch of your path towards documentaries, like in, in its briefest form, how did you end up in docs? Well, I just always liked movies. And, uh, I, I think the the short narrative is that I had, I had a really, uh, severe speech impediment as a kid, I was in therapy until I was 16 and I couldn't speak until I was five. Um, and I was pretty, uh, and, uh, the world was kind of harsh and movies were, uh, my refuge. And so I just loved being in a cinema. That was my thing. And when I was like seven, eight, nine, I would go and watch the same movie three or four times in a row. Um, and so uh, it's just like if you, I guess, if you like baseball, you want to be a baseball player. I liked going to the movies. So I wanted to make movies that I would want to go see. Yeah. Yep. And so I, I had no interest in documentary. And um, I went to Hampshire College uh, with the intent of, um, of sort of creating my own curriculum to design sort of uh, a, a curriculum based on everything I thought a director would need to uh, create, to be, uh, 
to have a dramatic fiction career. And then I would go to graduate school after college. So a lot of mythology and Shakespeare and stuff like that. And I, and I took a, a survey course while I was there um, on ethnographic film. And uh, it was sort of a, from Lumiere to Ross McAway mm -hmm. between. And I was just wildly excited at the sort of limitless possibilities of the form. And at that moment, this was in 88, I was like, oh, I want to take everything I know about and love about fiction and create theatrical nonfiction movies. Um, so it was, it was never, my, my, my interest in nonfiction was always primarily rooted in the theatrical experience. Um, and uh, and also in my love of the French New Wave, which I really got into in high school. And so for me, the documentary had that kind of wild west, limitless possibilities. There's no rules, um, you know, and it, it, it's it. Yeah. So that was the, that was how I got into documentary. Well, you know, I dig what you're saying because, A, it is true, right? Like nonfiction as a medium, it's so much more malleable. Like if you look at like, you know, the, the, the cinema, going to the movies, there's really been sort of very strikingly little evolution in terms of the storytelling. Whereas with docs, it's like, and you have kind of relentlessly throughout your career pushed the boundaries of these from starting in like, you know, very verite driven, you know, on the ropes or, you know, following Ollie North or whatever it may be to this like, you know, and the arc of sort of where you are now. Um, and the Bowie movie, uh, you know, sort of sculpting with all of this pre-existing material, how have you um, and how deliberate are you about sort of pushing those boundaries and finding in each film, whatever it may be, what's right for it? I'm thinking of the like animation and montage of heck or, you know, all of these different things. How are you kind of coming to what's the visual grammar or language that's right for a specific film and in what part of the process? There's a really great conversation with, um, Vim Benders and Errol Morris that, uh, I saw somewhere, I think, related to the Pigeon Tunnel um, recently. And they talked about, both of them talked about um, how when they approach a project, they have to feel that they're entering new ground, that mm -hmm. they're creating a new language, whether they are or not, that they themselves as artists have to feel that they're, to make the experience worthwhile. And that really resonated with me. And that's kind of how I've approached each film as a kind of um, <clears throat> finding ways to to uh, to challenge pre-exist my even my own pre-existing ideas and what nonfiction is, um, and then in terms of figuring out the grammar of the subject, that's um, you know all my films going back to I guess the contagion of the picture have um, tried to find a formal style that reflects the experience of the subject um so that kind of dictates uh the style that plus um i write I, my process is i screen everything and then i write a script and um sometimes in the process you need things that don't exist and you have to find uh, ways What's to connect the dots because uh, the other thing with my work is everything exists in the present tense 
Mm-hmm. There's, they're not films where people are telling you about things that happen and then you're experiencing the past tense. They're all created to experience things in the present tense. So therefore, um, there's a need to create, uh, you know, material. So in the kids' case in the picture, it was photo animation and, and montage of hack. Um, uh, I knew that the 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 ephemera the, from the journals was going to be a main character, yeah. if you will, in the film. The cell animated components um, really came, was not something I thought I was going to need at the point that the project started. It was once I've evaluated everything, I realized that there were these critical moments that there was no way to bring to life. Yeah. So, so go back, um, you know, again, go back to Kids Days in the Picture in terms of the fashioning of that and the writing of that. Um, so, like, what exactly are you working with and, um, you know, what are you begin to sculpt with, you know, when you're doing your writing process and how in terms of the, you know, the, the photographic treatment, which has become so sort of iconic. Um, talk about that process of, of kind of marrying the visual language to the scripting process and what you're working from to begin with, with Kids Days in the Picture. Oh, you're going to take me back to some really good memories. Um, you know, I had never done archival. I'd never written a script per se for a, a, a film of that sort. Um, and so I remember quite vividly, it was uh, January 2000. I, um, I essentially moved into Bob's house at Woodland and he had all these scrapbooks um, that people had been making for him through the years. And I would say that probably like 70%, maybe 80% of the visuals, material, the ephemera in the kids season picture came from Rob's scrapbooks. Mm. Um, and they were really thorough. They were organized per film or per project going back to his earliest days. So I'm going through that, which gives me a sense of visually what we were going to have. And there's no documentary footage of Evans. I knew that going into it. So it was that was not going to be possible and also he wasn't going to be on camera so those those were the two sort of things and then at the same time I'm spending all of this time with Bob and um you know sort of even though it's not a verite film basically doing intensive immersion you know Mm -hmm. which which I knew about from when I was studying ethnographic film and I was trying to figure out it was like method directing trying to figure out how Bob ate drank slate slept um really trying to get into his head and into his clothes so I could try to direct the film as an extension, as in a kind of externalization of Bob's interior landscape. And so I, all of the directorial decisions in the film, for the most part, were trying to personify Evans. Mm-hmm. The, the, the camera, the, the, we used a steady cam. John Bailey was a DP who I was a big fan of from high school, from Mishima. Um, amazing film. Amazing film, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the use of uh, Steadicam and Dolly shots to create a sort of sensuality um, and a romanticism was, you know, Evans. And in that film, the, the, up until the last reel of the film, because it was finished in 35 when we had reels, there were no straight cuts. It was mm-hmm. the whole thing was a dissolve. And I, I don't think I've used a dissolve since. I mean, maybe somewhere, but not not really. And and that was all part of the process. So going to the photo animation, photo animation was served for two purposes. One, uh, the part that I like most is it sort of served as a commentary 
on the subjective nature of that story. You mm -hmm. got to remember, this was at a time when there was no such thing as one person telling their story, you know, off camera or whatever. And objectivity was uh, still a, a, a goal for most documentarians. And what we were trying to do in the Kids Hazen Picture is essentially, you know, produce an alternate truth, which is if you embrace the subjectivity of your subject, you are, you are, and allow them to kind of have ownership over certain parts of the story, you're illuminating, revealing aspects of them that couldn't be illuminated or revealed through third party testimony. It's experiential, essentially, like, right, you're plunging the audience into the experience of being Evans in a fundamental sense. So very concerned because it was a new language of setting a covenant with the audience. So they understood that we were in on it, that we were embracing it. It's not like we forgot to do interviews. So the first line of the film is there's three sides to every story, your side, my side, and the truth, and no one is lying. That was probably put in there specifically for Elvis Mitchell. You know, it was <laughs> right, of course. When he was writing for the New York Times because it was like, oh, what? How are the critics going to right. not think frame this? Frame this for me. And then the next, the first image you see, you hear an orchestra tuning up underneath that. And then you see red curtains and the red curtains open up and you're in Bob's backyard. Mm -hmm. The idea was that the curtains put you in a theatrical space, but Bob's house was the set. So mm -hmm. we were constantly from the first image trying to present the subjective, the theatricality. And then with the photo animation, they serve two purposes. One, by distorting the images, it called into question their veracity or the authenticity of them. So it wasn't just like this actually happened because the movie was not about that. It's irrelevant. Correct. And the, the, the second part was they created a sort of sensual, sublime, aesthetic pleasure that was seductive in lines of Evan being seductive. So at the point, to end, and thirdly, the film was financed by uh, USA Films Focus Features, which was, it was basically unheard of in that in 2000, 2001 for a movie studio to finance a documentary. So we knew that it had to be bigger than a talking head film. And so all of that went into the choices and went into that so film. Okay, so so two specific questions about that, and then we'll we'll jump forward to the new film. But I, I'm curious. So had he written the book was written, right? He had drafted the autobiography at that point that you're working from, or so what happened was he had he had published the book ninety uh, four, and then I think the book on tape in ninety six. And so what I did when I was working on the script is I had uh, the book on tape transcribed, and I had the book transcribed. Mm -hmm. And I would cut him and and Bob changed things up for the book on tape. And the other thing was Bob had had a stroke in the years between the recording of the book on tape and when I met with him. And so I was hoping I could use as much from the book on tape as possible. But that didn't, you know, I, I would say that the finished film was by 60, 70 percent from the book on tape and then 40 percent of material that I had to either that wasn't put on the book and tape or that I had to write to get from point A to point B because Bob's book was very episodic and mm -hmm. we were sort of fashioning a, a narrative. So the, the script though was, that was, a, I would say a relatively easy thing and just whittling it down. And it was happening at the same time that I was seeing the material that I had to work with. So I was basing the script off of like, there were stories that I was like, there's just not going to be anything 
to put on screen that's not going to feel like a holding shot. Right. And so that also ended up dictating which stories ended up go in or go go in or don't so how in the hell do you convince the studio at that point? like how the hell do you budget the film like because you're in such like untrod territory right you're doing something that's never been done that their buy-in must have been pretty significant to be like okay now conjure whatever you need out of the out of the out of the you know whatever rabbit out of the hat necessary here if i recall the budget what i think was 1.5 i think Nanette and I were paid 75,000 for two years work. And, um, and the most of the money was going to go into licensing. Um, we, at the point of the studio greenlit the film, we didn't know about After Effects. And in fact, I remember being at the first meeting, Barry Diller had agreed to finance the film who owned Universal at the time. And then he called up Scott Greenstein, who's now head of Sirius, but at the time was president of USA Films, was like, you're doing this documentary. And, you know, if you're Scott Greenstein, it's like not a good call. So then we come down into the office and they were already like going to do this because their boss had told them. And I'm pitching them the film of this guy talking off camera for now. <laughs> and they're like well what are we gonna see and to be honest i didn't really know and i made up this cockamamie story about how we were going to take 35 millimeter plates we were going to go shoot 35 millimeter plates for places where the photographs took and kind of super i'm like whatever i was right. pitching been awful we started making the film i realized that we would have to use at the time something called a flamer and inferno to right. do the, the visual effects, we had no money in the budget and the studio wouldn't give us any extra money. So I came up with this idea to give this effects house like top billing block in exchange for like doing all the effects for 35,000 or something. That ended up not working out. Like we could, we, it took it, we got three shots done. And then fortunately after effects like came on the market basically. Like John Diaz who edited the kids seats in the picture had been doing some commercial editing and used After Effects in some uh, titling. And it, you know, it had not been applied for- to Long form. Long form. And so it ended up just being this really, I mean, I think we ended up hiring Edgeworks and paying $10,000 or something for all the visual, 50,000, something like- it, Astonishing. Astonishing given the fact that like, there, we, there was no overages from the studio and somehow we got it done. Wow. Wow. Wild story. Okay. So, so flash forward to, you know, through, through all the years and all the like amazing projects you made the, give me the sort of origin story of the Bowie film. And, and like, obviously you've got kind of the legacy as being the like, okay, this is the, this is the, you know, the avatar of like rock star doc directors. How does this one sort of walk into your world? And, and, and a, 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 along with that question, my secondary question is, your crew size has been shrinking in some fundamental sense over the long arc of this until it's like I was sitting there as I'm watching the film and I was and I was thinking like this crazy motherfucker must have spent like how many years in the avid just tweaking out by himself like how did you keep like um you know the sort of clarity of vision with the the the, the sort of solitude you know the, the solitary nature of that you know, I think like most documentarians, I started off making films in college where you do, were doing everything yourself. 
So you edited, you did sound, you did camera. And, um, and I've always enjoyed editing and I've always enjoyed operating and I've directed, I think three pilots and I operated on camera on those sets. And, um, uh, so, um, I just, I liked, I liked to me, filmmaking is, is, is it, 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 like, I want to do every, I, I want to do like it's it's a privilege to me to sound edit or music edit a film like Moon Age Daydream. It's a privilege to edit Bowie's material. It's I wouldn't want to give that up. Mm-hmm. Right. It's one of the great joys. Right. Part of it is like that's why we're here. Like that's like why would you want to pass that opportunity up? The other thing is I I think a Moon Age in particular it was just budgetarily budgetary that. Um, we didn't have, we, we, we ran out of money before we started editing. So I, I was, you know, and I've always been someone who's committed to putting the money on the screen, um, you know, one way or another. Um, what do you mean by that? You, you ran out of money before you started editing. Like, give me, give me the origin story. So what happened with Moon Age uh, was um, coming off, okay, two, two parts of this. So the, the first part is in 2007, uh, I'd done this animated documentary called Chicago 10, and following the kids days in the picture. And I got a call from a woman I knew who worked at Sony BMG, no relation to the financing arm mm-hmm. of Moon Age Daydream and said, Hey, we just got to deal with Bowie and he doesn't want to do a documentary, but can, you know, we want to do something to use his catalog. Can you come up with an idea to pitch him? And so in May of 2007, I, went up and met David at his office in 57th street. And at the time I had come up with this very elaborate involved pitch that would involve shooting with him. There was no archival component, um, in a kind of scripted space. And, um, uh, the, at the end of the meeting, a couple of days later, his manager called me and said, you know, David loved the idea, but it's a little too physically demanding. He's kind of retirement right now. So if something changes, we'll let you know put that to bed thinking nothing would ever come of it. Do you, do you assume it's dead at that point? Like, okay, that was like, that was my meeting. I gave the like exact wrong pitch for the, where this dude, where he is. Well, he had just, what his manager told me is he had just had a heart attack like a year earlier and was basically in retirement. And I was asking to go around the world to India. And like, uh, it was a very physically demanding um, pitch. So yeah, there's no like, oh, let's wait and see if he comes around. That that thing's gone. So so I end up doing uh, Crossfire Hurricane about the Rolling Stones and then right into Montage of Hack. Um, And I really enjoyed, because a lot of what I love about film is montage. Um, and so I really enjoyed doing music docs and I, in a way, kids season picture was kind of a music doc, even though it's, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of presented as an opera of sorts. And I really, I, I just found great pleasure in working from that sort of source material. So I came up with this idea, you know, with the greatest iconic artists, you know, Madonna, Bowie, the Beatles, who, you know, you name them why do we need to go to a movie theater to get like the A through Z of their lives? Like Mm -hmm, you can get mm -hmm. that on Wikipedia. And like, if you're going to go see Queen and IMAX, you probably like know what you want to know before you go in there. And you just, you know, there's part of you is just like, I just want to fucking hear the music and see these images oversized and have a cinematic experience, a cinematic adaptation of this artist. Um, 
And so I came up with this idea called the IMAX Music Experience, um, which was this, essentially going to be a series of 15 40-minute films that were going to offer essentially no narrative and um, be these fully immersive musical experiences. And um, uh, BMG bought it, silence, bought the whole pitch, silence scene. And uh, I'm the, I mean, I wasn't, it was three days after I came up with this idea, I was with a friend of mine who worked at BMG and he's like, oh, you got to tell my boss about this. I'm like, dude, there's nothing to tell. It's just, it's no more. Like that's the pitch. That right. was it. There was nothing more involved than what I just said. To you. That was it. It was like one sentence. I was like, how are we going to fill the other 40 minutes in the room? Um, but anyways, Heartbreak Munch, who is the CEO of BMG, went for it, signed me to like a 15 picture deal. The idea was that each film would be budgeted at um, 5.4 million, which at, in 2015, before there was an explosion in the music doc space. Mm -hmm. it's yeah. like it, There was still white space. Yeah, there was still white space. I was like, oh, here's, this is the rest of my life. And I, I wanted to get out of advertising. I'd been directing commercials for 10 years. And, and I was like, okay, this is great. This is going to be the rest of my life. I'm going to do one of these a year. And I'm going to just like not have to answer to anyone. I got final cut and, um, you know, that's, this is going to be a great life. And so we started talking to bands and pretty much every artist we spoke to is kind of game. Like this was a totally different wow. landscape than today. Like there is, you go, go to the Beatles, go to Hendrix, go to, I mean, everybody, like it was, there was no, everyone was like, oh, this is great because it wasn't also the concept here was like, we're not, even if you wanted to do a documentary, we're not cannibalizing that opportunity. This is something that's- It's an experience. Yeah, yeah. very experiential. Um, so we were, we were going down the road, I think with the Beatles or heading down that direction and Bowie passed. And, um, and uh, I called his executor, who was also his manager at my initial meeting. And I told him what we were doing. And he said, you know, it's, you know, come call later in the year. We need a little time, but this sounds like it might be the right type of thing. And I think for, from the, their perspective, David had made it clear to his executors that he never wanted a kind of traditional documentary interview based one where third parties would end up owning the history. In fact, it was kind of said to me that he said pretty much that sentiment. And so what I was offering was, you know, I, I'm only, I need to access your archive and um, I'm not going to interview anyone. And, you know, I think, and, and they said to me, the only caveat, and this is like, again, unheard of in today's landscape was David's not here to authorize the film. So it's never going to be Bowie on Bowie. It has to be Morgan on Bowie and you need to embrace that. So it was, it was presented to me as an art project to begin with. Like, Amazing. this is art, this is arts and crafts. This is just, you're not doing a definitive, there is no definitive David Bowie. This is just your filtration of the Bowie experience. And there is not a single point from that moment forward where they offered me any instructions, criticisms, or advice, even when I asked for it. Wow. So you were literally let, like, here's, like, here's the keys, run me. They wanted, uh, this was, you know, they're like, they're not creatives by trade. So they weren't going to get involved in that part of it. Um, as I mentioned, 
so we had this $5.4 million budget, which sounded extravagant in, in uh, 2015. Um, I went into the Bowie Bowl, uh, probably I think in 2017, and it was enormous. I mean, uh, significantly more vast than the Stones Vault, um, you know, 100 times, 200 times bigger than the Kurt Cobain Bowl. I mean, 500 times bigger than me. Wow. And um, I had I had budgeted, you know, X amount of footage that we would have to transfer and digitize and bring into the system in the 5.4 budget before we knew we were doing Bowie. And a lot of this stuff didn't exist in tape form where it could be pre-screened or whatever. So we had we couldn't cherry pick what we Yeah, you literally had to digitize everything. We had to digitize everything and that took up the whole basically the whole budget minus some money I set aside for sound mix, which I knew I was going to have to mix the film and money I had set aside for color grading. Other than that, from the time we started digitizing to um, picture lock, I was kind of self-financing the film. I mean, I wasn't paying myself and I was editing myself. And, and for a big part of that time, we weren't charging money for office or avids or anything. And I uh, scaled down to a crew of two. Wow. So how do you go from the like, okay, 5.4 IMAX, you know, 40 minute version to like it becoming the sort of feature length epic that it is like, and, and does the, does, does the IMAX series still exist, you know, as a possibility or does that disappear or what's the scoop with that? Well, the, the IMAX, the, the, the whole, the whole conceit that I was operating from was that I would take over the institutional IMAX theaters uh, when they went dark at night, you know, mm -hmm. like, so that was the 40 minute idea. It was like, Hey, we're going to have like Rolling Stones at eight o'clock, Jay-Z at nine o'clock, Bowie at 10 o'clock taking over the science museums. And this would be this awesome thing. I mean, I was making this up, like no one right, right. asked me to do this. And, you know, as the reality came forward, that wasn't really happening. Uh, I think once I got Bowie, I kind of understood this, this, gravity of the situation and and that based upon business modeling led us to do a feature instead of a a 40 minute film um well also i imagine the enormity of the task right i mean like how like what volume of material gets digitized are we talking like what every every, every everything minus there were probably maybe two or three music videos that i couldn't afford to transfer all the reels to Maybe, but I think I transferred everything. I mean, David's had the 35 from uh, all the music videos that he did. Wow. And none of it had been transferred and there was no video daily. So, you know, some of that stuff like uh, Mark Romanek, who ended up becoming a, a quite a good friend. And um, during the production, he had done this video called Jump, which has this iconic shot we use in the film of David walking down a hallway. Yeah. And one, one of the things I learned in... in um, Crossfire Hurricane was uh, how valuable music video outtakes are mm -hmm. um, for getting moments of reflection of your subjects that are heightened and not dock you, mm -hmm. um, where they're not talking or singing that you can use under things that really uh, came to play in Montage of Hack, where the Smells Like Teen Spirit sequence is entirely from, yeah. uh, you know, outtakes from the music video and the the um, all upon the stuff of him in the poppy field so i knew that this and bowie had never participated in a documentary right except uh, this thing ricochet which is kind of a stage and the cracked actors so they were both kind of stagey documentaries so i knew i would need all 
even though there was a lot of stuff on David, it was a lot of stuff of him performing or doing mm-hmm. interviews. And I needed other visuals to, to bake the story. So that, um, the, uh, I mean, uh, there's so many elements here and I'm curious about the specifics of each of them, but there's one kind of dominant performance that seems to sort of take up a, a lot of screen time. Is that, is that true? Is there one performance that you're cutting to again and again? And if so, like what era, like what era is that? Uh, it like, it's the one that happens at the beginning of the film. You cut to it a bunch of times throughout. I'm assuming it's the same one, or maybe it's a bunch of different ones. No, so what I did was, um, I, you know, I knew the film was going to be completed in IMAX. So whenever I do a film, um, when we're digitizing uh, material, I color code to the source element. So I know how it's going to hold up when we finish the film. This is available in 16. This is available in 35. This was shot on 16, but no longer exists on 16. Like I have all that. So I, I, I try to lean into using the film components you know whenever possible um there are only maybe i don't know how many eight or ten multi-cam concerts in existence of bowie which means concerts where uh, they were used multiple cameras and each one of those isolated cameras still exists all the footage still exists so after i screened through all the footage uh which took two years i then went and did my own line cuts of each each of the performance individually each of the performances so i could evaluate myself what opportunities would exist and for example with ziggy stardust one of the rubs on is the concert film is that it's you know it's kind of out of focus and very red predominantly red and kind of oppressive looking and so going through that concert i was looking for songs that had more latitude in terms of angles and that mm-hmm. led me to all the young dudes where there I saw there were these shots that weren't penny didn't use that would help get me to where I wanted to go um and I would do it so I would do it for technical reasons and then to audition right to because you know if you looked at the serious moonlight tour from 1983 and you watched the line I remember watching that with a colleague um early on and then very early on in the process we screened the serious moonlight tour and he goes, there's no way we're using a frame of that. Hmm. And I was like, no, 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 wait till we get, we got to look at the, the bras. And he's like, there's no way. And truth be told and respectfully, and I don't mean to, you know, uh, you know, it's not very well cut, you know, it was probably Mm -hmm. cut in a couple days on a three quarter umatic and spit out. Right. And spit out. And um, and when we went back into that material, uh, I was like, it was really exciting because it was like, oh, my God, we get to kind of uh, uh, reinvent, uh, sort of take back in a way some of the nastiness that uh, that that some of us, you know, listen, I I was Bowie in 83. You know, it was like, you know, it was uh, he had started to turn. And even though Let's Dance is a great album, at the time, it was starting to feel a little more right plastic. And so it was nice to go back to the 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 craft of his performance in there. So as you're screening down, you know, the dailies or the, you know, sort of all the archive for those first two years, you walk into the bay in the morning, like how many hours a day are you doing? Are you sort of putting locators on and like, do you have a sense of what it wants to be? Or are you just sort of watching and letting it wash over you? Well, a couple of things. One, um, 
I was working, if I wasn't there screening, you know, I already knew we had financial problems from that from that moment. And so if I wasn't screening, nothing was happening. We weren't any closer to finishing the film. Same thing with editing. If I was not any minute that I was at home, not in the chair, right? Not in the chair was another minute that the film was not, was, was, and, you know, became an albatross. I, 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 you know, desperately wanted to get through this thing. So I was screening probably six days a week. I would say Monday through Friday was probably from 8 a.m. to one in the morning. Um, uh, go home for dinner and come back, screen. Um, and are you making notes as you're going or are you? So one of the things I do when I'm watching, uh, when I'm screening footage is I, I want, you only have one chance to experience the footage for the first time after yep. that, you know, but there's a, and so a lot of what I'm doing in my first pass. And of course with both, it really only was one pass, but what a lot of what I'm doing is trying to write down how I'm experiencing the footage. Cause that's the thing that's hard to remember. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I, I, I think I was, you know, there's a lot of footage you're going through and you're like, it just technically there's no way I could use this, but I need to watch it for character analysis. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so that went on for a couple of years. I think at the end, usually with these type of films, there's a couple key sources, you know, like uh, that, you know, you're going to use a lot of, and I remember kind of going, okay, so these are the building blocks that we're going to have to work around knowing what exists on 35 and 16, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, if someone said to me, why don't you use David's first televised performance of Starman? I would say, because it only exists on a line cut from, the BBC and then one hold up in my IMAX and I, and I made a world that if I can't cut the performance, I'm not using it. Um, so in terms of the like narrative structuring of it, which even in a, in a kind of like experiential non-narrative, you know, vibe that you've got to it, there is still a, like a sort of fundamental story arc to it. And some of that is told in the like archival interview material. Some of it is just merely the sort of passage of time and his embodiment of the decades, you know, or whatever it is. But like how much of your editorial decision-making is intuitive versus analytical in terms of structuring the arc of the film and this goes through i think all my films uh there's almost no structural adjustments during the edit the edit is almost entirely picture it's all about finding because they're generally scripted before i get into the edit room i mean they all are scripted before i get to the edit room so and those structures are pretty tight and i've you know you, 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 and so you start building that out and then you refine it as it comes along. But, but it, it generally, you can sort of see on paper if the, because you have, a th you know, there's a through line that, that you got to connect through. So Bowie, it was the hard part on, on Moon Age was figuring out how to write an experience, right? Like that was something I hadn't been faced with. I didn't want it to feel like linear narrative. Um, by design, it was meant to be immersive and experiential and, and, and doggedly non-narrative, but, um, I didn't know how to do that. You know, I had no experience with that. So I, it really, I was very challenged and frustrated for about nine months trying to figure out how to, how to, how to put it together. Um, and I guess the breakthrough for me was, uh, I was writing a lot during those nine months, I would, I would come to work and I would write essays really about different sort of theories or ideas that David, philosophies that David was 
explored. So I'd write about chaos and fragmentation and um, various art movements and you know, German expressions and blah, blah, blah. And I started to realize that they all kind of relayed back to this idea of transience, of impermanence, of mm -hmm. chaos and fragmentation. And that, that I could kind of go through every section of Bowie's life and validate just by finding an angle that related back to that through line in that instant. So I, in my loose suggestions or interpretations of this, it would relate to the spiritual with some Buddhistic tent, you know, components. I related it to the creation of art in the way that he employed oblique strategies and worked with Eno. In my mind, gender fluidity was another part of that process. Um, it, these all became these different avenues, not gender fluidity, but the, the other stuff were these. And then what I sort of re realized is that, that Bowie created these challenges for himself. That's the story of his life. Right. That's the, that's the art and the process, right? Is Create these challenges for himself. And so I started thinking of it like the Iliad. And I started thinking like, okay, if you take God out of this and Bo and you say, instead of God creating these challenges for us, it's Bowie is creating his own challenges. Then it's kind of this hero's myth where he has to sail these seven seas to arrive at this realization that you don't have to throw yourself in the fire to create great art. You need love and um, something very human and um, beautifully put beautifully put. And, 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 and then when I came to that realization, at one point I was like, oh my God, am I making a fucking love story? Is this the Wizard of Oz? Is this like, he's running from the one thing he needs and he doesn't know it? Is that what the story is? And, um, and, and, and I started building out that narrative a little bit and it, it wasn't a stretch. I mean, when he, when he met him on, everything changed. His it upended it, changed. yeah. It's it just everything musically he just got everything became more comfortable and and it was a great uh it was a, something beautiful to uh see i'm getting a, a kind of emotional thinking about it now it was it was kind of uh beautiful to observe in real time if you will going through like two years of material and then you get to this point you know a year and a half in the project whatever it was and you see this light and this the um and you know who um and so so the narrative going to your there was a question a long time ago uh nothing really changed structurally in the edit room because i had to follow those i knew what those each seed that he was going to sell was i knew by the time i got into it that when i got to the section on berlin it was going to explore these three components of impermanence in that section and i okay 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 so i understand i miss section, like ziggy was ziggy i had in my notes like um spirituality gender fluidity and um uh, there was one other thing that part of this transient thing that would come would be explored during the ziggy section then when we got to the diamond dog section it became the cutout process and the idea of physical movement, of putting yourself in extreme situations, that was part of the transience. And then when we got 
I, you know what I mean? So yes. and then there was this there, then there was this new section after Berlin that I kind of created in Bowie's character design because it's not really a character, but it was like the nomad, the the professor who the 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 seeker who travels the world. The wanderer, yep. The wanderer, which took us basically from you know the the German Berlin period to the point where Bowie said, "I'm I want to recalibrate and and." And, and what was really exciting for me, having lived through it, was like the hearing him talk about going, being part of the mainstream as just another experiment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like, a, it's just like, hey, let's see what this is like. And then he, you know, he does like, no one gets to really 15 years in your career, whether you're an underground artist, go, I'd like to see what it's like to be platinum. And then right. suddenly go out and have the biggest show on earth. And then shed that too. You know, well, and that, and that became the kind of Greek myth, you know, tra tragedy, not tragedy, but, you know, the, 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 the real lesson of the film is the one time Bowie doesn't quickly pivot is during the 80s. And he acknowledges that he got a little lazy because of the money and it created the darkest creative period of his life. And so from that, he came out of that with this renewed commitment to, um, to his work and to his art. Beautifully, beautifully and, and very clearly evoked and told there in terms of your process. Thank you so much for sharing that. I have two last questions for you, which is with a, you know, and, and I'm like used to spending, you know, eons in the edit bay, but you make me feel like, you know, a rank amateur by comparison to the amount of time you log in there. Like, um, how much are you using the feedback of those around you, collaborators? Like, when do you know when to put the paintbrush down? I'm thinking of, I once saw in the Whitney, there was an exhibit on the Beats, um, and there was this painting by this woman, um, I think it's Jay DeFeo is her name, and she was painting a rose for like 25 years, okay? And it's the most extraordinary painting. And when they had interviewed her about it, it she was like, like, they were like, when did you stop painting when you were painting this one painting for 25 years? And she was like, once I had found the center of the rose. So like, you know, when you're spending years at a time in the bay, like, when do you know, okay, that's it, it's done. Well, again, because I'm not doing structural explorations in the in the edit. Um, once I get to the end, I'm pretty. It's Clear. then about fine tuning and cleaning things up. Um, I kind of get tunnel vision at that point in terms of narrative. Uh, um, by the way, I'm testing out the narrative every day. I'm assembling to get to the end. So I I. I Anytime I'm almost every time I make an edit, I go back to the beginning of the film and watch the whole thing through to get to that point. Um, so it's really bad. It's really battle tested by the time you get to the end. Yeah. And then it's really just about visual, uh, the visual connections and making sure that I, there's nothing left to think about. I, you know, like I remember in Montage of Hack, um, I was working on the, I was editing the front part of the film. Joe Beskowski was editing the back part of the film. And the first time, and which was frustrating because um, this was kind of funny. I forgot to assign one of us the section where Nirvana exploded. So we weren't, throughout <laughs> the whole edit, able to actually watch the thing through. And then 
And then the first time we put the three blocks together, we're like, oh, that's it. And that was in August. And we had, I think, till November on our schedule. And I think we spent the next two months, like maybe cutting three minutes out, mm-hmm. like just trying to get like fat out, but nothing outside of that. And that was like, you know, um, so I, I, I think, like I said, it's it's really the the editing, the the uh, the the constantly going back to the beginning during the edit, watching the edit over as it's coming together to kind of um, uh, telegraph or foresee any structural issues. All the thinking work is done. Then it's just about the sort of like, ex- you know, experiential fine filigree sculpting that you're that you're doing in the end is what you're saying. Yeah, and I don't present to the studio or network or financiers until I feel like I've had like I'm done which you know mean it doesn't mean that they're stuck with it it just means that like i don't i don't want to show someone something when i know what the where i could give notes to myself to fix because i haven't had time to get to it so um and then in terms of screening for colleagues and stuff uh you know with the pandemic it it became almost impossible with moon age so um there was very limited sort of opportunities for outside feedback Mm -hmm. well it's it's so it's so um it's such a singular voice. It's, it is very much, you know, Morgan on Bowie and it like, it, it, it just breathes that every frame of it and watching it. And it's just so successful. Okay. So my last question, uh, wait, I got, I'll tell you a funny story. Go. Uh, so because of the lack of feedback, um, uh, you know, really it wasn't until the film was completely finished uh, on a DCP that like started what people thought of it and the the first screening that i had of the dcp uh davis guggenheim organized and he's super tied with bono and bono was coming to town so davis was like hey can you screen the film for bono and some of his friends and so it ended up being bono the edge eddie better and sean penn and the, the screening one was great and um at the the afterwards we, we went out to we were invited to a house for dinner and stand by a fire pit and uh and this is like five hours after the movie ended and sean who i'd never met what was obviously a huge fan of and wildly intimidated by uh was like you mind if i give you a note (laughs) (laughs) and i mean like i was like sure sure and he's like I've been sitting here for the last four hours trying to figure out what to say to you. And I, I can't think of anything because I think the film is almost perfect until the last scene. And I go station to station. He goes, you need to get rid of it. I go, what? Now the movie used to end with a 13 minute version of David performing station to station from 78, never before seen a performance that I thought summed up all the themes of the film and was the greatest film performance of David's uh, career. No one had ever seen it. And I was like, that was my punctuation point at the end of the film. Never considered for a second removing it. And the film was called Station to Station. It wasn't called Moonlight Station. Wow. And uh, and I look at Sean and I go, really? And he goes, yeah, really. I go, how confident are you? He goes, very. And I was like, huh. And then like an hour later, I run into him. Uh, I mean, there are only eight people there, but I, I like, I see him and I walked up to him. I go, so I'm thinking about your note. 
you you really you think I should lose uh station station? He goes, hundred uh, percent. He goes, I'll tell you right now, you take you cut that out. We go test screen the film, and I guarantee you, you're gonna get this blah 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 score without that thing in there. And based off of that. It kind of resonated with me, and uh, I lobbed it off the fucking film. Wow! The film's called Moon Age Daydream, and uh, and yeah, it's, uh, for everyone who thought the film was really long, uh, <laughs> without Sean Penn, it would have even been more excruciatingly long. And now I can't even imagine the film with that at the end. But in it, yeah, so I couldn't even imagine anymore, like what that would be like it would be exhausting yeah that is an absolutely epically fantastic story and it abrogates the need for my my previous question because you can't have a better ending than that so fucking hats off man what a what a beautiful i mean a what a beautiful film a, b what a beautiful life's work you've had and thank you so much for sharing the I don't know the, the great intimacy and and sort of candor in your process because it's um, there's nobody doing what you're doing, man. And it's like it's uh, there's a lot of people that will be grateful out there to hear how you do what you do. Oh, you know, I, I would say that I think that like I'm my the reason I got into this thing. I almost feel you know, which was to like do this sort of aesthetic adventure. I'm so blown away by how the medium has evolved in the last, you know, really in the last um, 15 years um, in particular. And um, there, I, I, I think that there are so many, you know, if you go back to 2000, just 23 years ago, there were very, very few people on earth using the language, the visual language of cinema to tell nonfiction stories. And now it's everywhere we look. And so it's, it's, it's really, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in awe. Like I go to, I was just came back from Sundance and was like, boom, boom, boom. Everything I saw was like extraordinary. And each film had its like own vibe and style and aesthetic. And it's just, you know, I think that um, the, the, the aesthetic, you know, evolution that has been brought about by the sort of uh, the technological changes that have sort of leveled the playing field have just created this amazing kind of energy to our field right now, which is really amazing to. It's electrifying. Yeah, it's electrifying. Um, excellent, man. Well, thank you so much. I'm uh, grateful for the time and I look forward to uh, sitting down in person at some point or another. Okay, thank you so much. Really appreciate be, it. Be good, man. Bye-bye. Thank you to Brett Morgan for making the incredible movies and for sharing his time elucidating his process. And thank you for all the subjects who've entrusted Brett with their stories. From the late, great Bob Evans to the Rolling Stones to Kurt Cobain and David Bowie. See you next time on The Dangerous Art the documentary.